This is Oh Man Rolling Dice. If you're a player that's looking to play White Plume Mountain, this might be a good spot to jump off the podcast. There, there's going to be spoilers. That's what I'm getting at. There's going to be spoilers. I would also, before you run, though, if you are one of these players that are leaving us now, uh, we are going to be one-shotting White Plume Mountain with Devin on our podcast. We're going to put together a party of adventurers that are foolish enough to go into White Plume Mountain. I'm actually kind of hoping for a TPK on it. I can like, crank up the difficulty if you I, I want. Would, the, the, from here, what? what? Who goes egoing? You know what would be great? You know what would make something awesome? <laughs> Everybody's dead. Oh my god, what a plot twist. Not not room one, not room one, but maybe like at some point in the, the adventure if everybody wipes. I mean, how awesome the, is that? The, the final battle is really hard. <laughs> there you go, there you go. See? Here's the thing. If I'm putting together a party of adventures, I don't want you in it. I don't want you in it. I'm like, huh, look, like you're doing like interviews. So what do you plan to get out of this dungeon? I hope we all fucking die. That would be grand. I mean, that would be a surprise nobody saw coming. Dude, sorry, you didn't pass the interview. Okay, get the fuck okay. out of here. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> All right, let's do spoilers. So let's talk some specifics. Where where would you like to start, Devin? What are some of your favorite parts of, of White Plume Mountain? So we were talking a little bit earlier about lack of story, and I will I, I will tell you the original White Plume Mountain has has a story, but it's very bare bones. It's basically just a reason to go there and then like a final boss. The sequel, however, oh my lord, it has a hell of a story. And the, the, the story of White Plume Mountain is essentially the story of Caraptus, the, uh, the archmage, the crazed mad wizard who's behind all of this. And what is his it's name? Caraptus. Okay. I thought for a minute there, I thought it, I thought it was maybe Craptus. No, and I'm just... Caraptus. But I'm like, that would fit a funhouse. Yeah. That would fit a funhouse module. <laughs> well, his, uh, the story the of him... crap on this. The story of him is quite an interesting what what they've done with them it, it kind of sparks back to the one of the reasons i really like these older modules is it's it's sort of like this weird jumble of science fiction and fantasy combined which you don't really see too much of that anymore everything's all very no, fantasy very high fantasy very common very common in early editions of the mm-hmm. we well, got expedition to the barrier peaks yes the perfect example of that and if you look at what we call appendix n, appendix n yeah there's a Append- lot of sci-fi Appendix- material. The yeah. books, the books that inspired the writing of Dungeons and Dragons were not just fantasy books. There was a lot of sci-fi books. Yep. And portals- I'm actually working my way through that list. Portals to other worlds nice. and other places is pretty much a common staple of early. You're not going to another plane. You're actually going to another planet. That sort of thing. Nowadays, a portal. Split Infinity, the the Apprentice Adept series, but yes, that, that's another example. The, the interesting thing about it is you have this guy who there's knowledge of him from like 1300 years ago and he went missing. Uh, he was this, this brutal overlord, warlord, w- wizard who demanded more and more sacrifices from his people until even though he was horribly powerful and kept them in line through fear. It's kind of just this footnote of the story. He's kind of just the guy who created the dungeon and now he's captured these weapons and imprison them in his dungeon and he's seeking people to come in and, and grab them for, for no apparent reason. He, this is just something he's doing because he's bored. Uh, he just, he's come back after 1300 years and he's decided, yeah, he, he's like, ah, well, people are coming to the mountain, deal with the things of, of weird and wacky things I've made. <laughs> the sequel went and took that and ran with it all the way to the bank. 
and they just came up with this whole backstory behind the character and why everything went happened the way it did and there's there's a lot of really interesting ideas but it's it's a completely different type of adventure white plume mountain is a funhouse dungeon the second one is actually a lot more story driven it, it's mostly story driven it takes place in white plume mountain but it's all different and changed and it's it's very much still a dungeon crawl but less puzzles and more like there's a mystery and there's this this sort of weird story going on and it gets weird uh there the ending is fanned i don't even want to spoil it even though we're in spoilers because it is <laughs> something else but i think if we're if we're talking about the original one the simplest it's the simplest thing you'll ever see it's just a pit uh, you're walking through the passageway, it's two feet of water, and then at some point it just drops 10 feet. And that's it. It's full of water. That's it. That's that's literally it. That's all it is. In first edition, if you're a paladin, that's a death sentence. Yeah. Uh, you go down there, you're down there. They're, they're not going to get you out. And oh. there are stories of paladins drowning to death with this trap. In fifth edition, there are no restrictions to swimming by wearing heavy armor. So it's kind of just there. You just make an athletics check. Basically, yeah. There's no disadvantage or anything. Um, there's no rules around it. There are drowning rules, which you're going to want to definitely brush up on if you're running this dungeon, because uh, there are some instances. That's actually my favorite room. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that one. But that's kind of the example I was giving earlier, where word for word, it, it's the same. But edition-wise, it's completely... It, the context is different. So the, the idea... See, you're dealing with a whole bunch of guys that were medieval war gamers, And they knew that if you were wearing full plate armor and sunk into a pit of water, you were done. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, that, that's part of the reason I also really like the old school stuff. Like reading through the second edition DM's guide is, is a marvel because they're actually talking about like real historical references and all that kind of, they, they don't do that anymore. Um, I really like that. And yeah, because a, a lot of the times you think, well, how did these knights in full suit harnesses, like, how did they even get killed in battle? It's like, well, they weren't. They were either trampled or they would fall into the mud and drown in their own armor. <laughs> like, it was yeah. brutal. Yep. And yeah, absolutely. If you're wearing full plate mill and you go into a 10-foot pit of water, you're dead. You're not getting out of there because you can't take it off fast enough to... The to party is going to have to get you with their grappling hook or something and pull your ass up and out because you're not getting out on your own. You're going to have to hope that you weren't the only strength based character in your party. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so that, that's just the kind of a silly little thing that seems so innocuous. And and that's one of the things I really like about this dungeon is because we'll, we'll, we'll get to my favorite room. Now the it's the room with the Kelpies. There are two Kelpies. They're basically like sirens. They sort of charm you into the water with them. And what's great about it is that this is a level eight dungeon and everybody's all ready with all these weapons and gear and magic stuff and all these spells of power. It's amazing how quickly things can go south once you start drowning. Uh, <laughs> it's, you, you, if you are charmed into water, you do not hold your breath, meaning that you have your charisma score of rounds to survive. So if you're the wizard and you go under, you're probably dying already. If you're, you know, anybody else uh, who's low, low on the con, you're, you're, you're actually in a very tight spot. You could have 85 health, does not matter. Uh, you yeah. are dying now. And so I really like that, that particular room because it's, it's a room that is a puzzle. Like the fight is kind of the backdrop. Like the, the enemies in that room aren't actually, co combating them is not really the, the objective. The objective is to not drown. 
Um, and it is all saving throw based. So, I mean, realistically, if they all succeed their saving throws, that room is a bust. There's, there's nothing that that room can challenge them with. But if even one person fails, all of a sudden it becomes this huge multifaceted challenge where they have to deal with saving that person, but also fight them off. And then also if they haven't all made their saves and they more got to make rolls and then if a second person goes in, now they've got two to deal with and mm -hmm. it become it quickly escalates out of control really fast. And it's such a simple concept, but it just works really effectively. And I even had players uh, from the stream, like three weeks later, they were still talking about that room. They're like, I, I, they're, I cannot believe how good that room was. That was so great. Like, I really love that room. I'm going to use that kind of concept for when I'm creating encounters. Like it was so cool. And, and that's uh, Kelpie maybe isn't physically all that intimidating, but not really. No, but the fact that, you know, you can be charmed and then drowned. I think the, uh, that, and I do, I do like that room because of its simplicity, because a lot of the other rooms are incredibly complex, which yeah. is interesting. Uh, we talked earlier about the, the chains and mud. Yeah. So in the original game, in, in the original version and in the fifth edition version, it kind of just explains the room. And that's really all it does. It doesn't explain how they can cross it or for, for so, two reasons. So to be clear for people that are listening, right? There's, there's these wooden discs at the bottom of these chains hanging all over. All covered in slime. All covered in slime. Hanging over a muddy geyser stream. It might as well be lava. Yeah, exactly. Hot mud. and Because White Plume Mountain is in fact a volcano. It has a mm -hmm. whole bunch of lava happening which is the other thing i find really interesting that it's a volcano dungeon filled with a lot of water traps yes yes exactly well water boils basically yep. there's a lot of boiling water and the, the uh so you have to cross this room by essentially swinging on these grease chains essentially i mean you, you know you have the fly spell so there are options there, there's ways around it absolutely but i think that's the way the room was designed it was if you are a wizard that only has nuke spells, like fireballs and magic missiles and that, this is not necessarily the dungeon for you. Your skills are, are helpful at times, but in a room like this, a simple fly spell or a spider climb spell might be all you need to get across it. That being said, though, those are still burning your spell slots. Exactly. And when you cross the pit and get to the next room, you are now down some spells. Sure, um, sure. Now, we, we, you had mentioned that in the third edition, you believe it was all skill check. So not only is it a skill check, it is, uh, it is a skill check for every single disc. And the level of success you make is dependent on how well you did your, your roll. So there's thresholds for multiple different... Uh, ver so if you roll like an 18, it's like you make it to the center. If you roll a 15, it's like you catch the edge and you have to hoist yourself up. If you roll a 14, you're slipping off. You have to make a deck save. And then if you fail that, you fall. Like there's... And then the geysers are coming up. Like that's a really hard room to run. And that was probably the one I had the most difficulty trying to decide how I was going to run it because something else that's interesting about comparing editions word for word. Again, it is the same, but it says that the geysers go up every five and three minutes, but in first edition, a round was a minute. I heard about this issue with this room. Yes. And in the fifth edition, a round is like six seconds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. so the room changes. Now, in the third edition, they accounted for this. In the third edition, they changed it to five rounds and three rounds. Mm -hmm. But in the fifth edition, they left it as minutes, which I did some calculating. For Rogue, that's not a problem. Because jumping, again, in fifth edition, you can just jump. Jumping is just a thing you can do. 
as part of your, it's part of your movement mm -hmm. and it's based on your strength and whatever. But, and then it, what happens, you jump onto the thing, it starts swinging around and then that would make it difficult, but it's all left in the hands of the DM to determine how you want to do that. So I, I took the rules from the third edition one and I kind of transplanted that over and just had them there for reference in case I needed them. And I ended up not needing them because they just cast the fly spell. I'm trying to remember where I read or heard that because in my research for this for tonight, I ran across that same issue. Someone brought that up and they went with just the, the first edition, the spirit of the first edition in that the geysers went off every round. Yeah. Which is, I believe what I did too. Yeah. Rather than doing minutes, uh, they just kept it yeah, like once every three to five rounds as opposed to once every three to five minutes. The other two, like I said, the three, there's, there's three other rooms that I, I kind of want to touch on. Two of them mainly because the rooms themselves are, are quite fascinating, but my God, describing them is a challenge maybe, to the DM. And maybe just before we go there, because I don't even know if we mentioned this previously yet. The idea of the adventure is that you're coming to White Plume Mountain to retrieve three... Yes. Really powerful That's an understatement. magic items. And these three magic items are hidden somewhere in the dungeon. Yep. Yeah. So so somewhere in here you're trying to find those three those three pieces of loot. Yeah. They are actually what's what's interesting about it is that they were they came out in the fifth edition Dungeon Master's Guide, like when, when the core books came out, they were listed as examples for sentient weapons. Yes. And then this adventure just says this weapon, see this part in DM guide, which so, is, I just, that just goes to show you how well known and how popular this adventure I, is. Isn't it? I have a story about the sword black razor. When I was, <laughs> when I was, but a boy at school one day, a friend of mine who played Dungeons and Dragons, but did not play Dungeons and Dragons with me. Uh, you know, we were at the school where everybody was being bussed in. So we were friends, but we weren't so close that we we're playing Dungeons and Dragons together. He brought his character sheet to school one day, as we all did, to brag. And it was it was one of the old TSR original. They were sort of an orange-colored uh, character sheet. And he had, under his magic items, written this item called Black Razor. And the power of this blade, I even remember this as a kid. I looked at that and said, that's, like, that's insane. How much, like, what that sword is capable of is insane. And I don't know how you're playing in a game where you're only, I forget what level's character was, but e even to my, you know, I would maybe only been playing two or three years. I could look at that sword and go, that is way too powerful. But the sword, the the name Black Razor stuck with me for a very long time. As a young D&D player, I never realized it came from White Plume Mountain. It was only later when I learned about White Plume Mountain that I found out that's where Black Razor came from. That's actually, what's interesting about Black Razor is it's, it, it's indicative of the fact that, um, Lawrence Schick clearly thought they were going to let him format and edit his uh, dungeon because Black Razor is like totally ripped off from some book. I don't remember the name of the book, Stormbring but it's Stormbringer. Is that, is that, yeah, that's it. It's it's like literally just ripped right from the pages because mm. he he, he kind of wanted to go back and re-edit it and they just published By, it. I want to say Michael, Michael Moorcock, mm. uh, Stormbringer. And you're right. Lots of people will immediately go, that sword is just a Stormbringer ripoff. Um, but, but again, in, in our homebrew campaigns, we rip things off all the time. Oh, like God, it, yeah. But as you said, it's obvious that he wanted to revise that because he could have, you know, had Dungeons and Dragons been a little more mainstream, who knows? Maybe there would have been a copyright <laughs> issue. You never know. Uh, 
But yeah, Black Black Razor, by the way, for in fifth edition is still just as ridiculously overpowered. It's it's it, it's borderline broken. Uh, <laughs> in, or it is. In first edition, is it not a plus five sword? I think so. It's, like, I think it's one of the few. I mean, the weapons the weapons in White Plume are supposed to be ridiculously powerful because you're not intended to keep them. You are sent yeah. in to retrieve them for people paying you to get them. That's that's the whole plot. We could so we could he, have a whole episode though on. If you were running White Plume Mountain in a in a full blown campaign, what PC is giving Black Razor back? Well, I mean, then you have more. Well, okay, so this is another thing, right? So in older editions, sentient weapons had this thing called an ego, which yes, they could had to you. do what they wanted, or their ego would get to a certain point, and then it would literally possess you and force you to do what it wants. That is not a mechanic in fifth edition, but they do have a nice little line at the bottom of the of the weapons uh, sort of stats that says they want this and if it's not met there will be conflict and it kind of leaves it up to you to determine what that well, is and i mean if 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 the story is that some powerful lord has sent you to get black razor he's probably going to hunt you down if you run off well i mean it. scrying is is going to be able to find the item and then they're exactly. going to send bounty you hunters could, and you could even play with some of the artifact rules where every artifact even though it's super powerful, it's also got a curse that comes along with it. True. And in the third edition version, they actually do count for it um, by saying that if you do not return with the weapons, there will be a 10,000 gold bounty on you. There you go. I think it's but, the third edition. One, one, of, the, one of, one of the versions has that. In, in my table of chaotic neutral players, they wouldn't give a shit about a $10,000 oh, no, 10, yeah. uh, gold piece bounty. They'd be like, I don't care. I've got the Black Razor. Come and get it come and try and get it from me so i always look at those and go this is i that's the only problem i have with adventures where you go to get the powerful magic item so no, it, no players giving over the power if that item. is a concern something they did in the third edition they did this thing called legacy weapons yeah and in the in the revised version of white plume mountain that they did for third they turned them into legacy weapons and actually this is really interesting because in the in, in the original version and even in the white and the yawning portal one the weapons are just kind of there and they have like a little bit of, of history associated to them but there isn't really much there the second edition sequel gave them a bit more of a, of a history fleshed out but the third edition one gives them full-on backstories explaining like talking about black razor is actually like a creature from another dimension that was converted to a sword and then Caraptus was communing with other multiverses and they gave it to him to make it leave their dimension as it was collapsing in on itself. Like, like just wacky, wild stuff. Whole histories about these things. And so that's actually one really interesting bit to help. If you really want to, to run this adventure, I'd recommend looking those up because it gives you a bit more to inform how to play these sentient weapons and give them a real personality. Because mm -hmm. what they don't tell you, what, 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 well, I don't, what, what isn't in the original is that these weapons all journeyed with Caraptus back when he was doing his thing and so they all actually know him and they're very vital there's a reason why those specific weapons were stolen and taking the white plume is, is generally what what they're saying is they're, they have a history there um let's uh let's let's jump back I only wanted to interject with the weapons because as we get further along describing rooms eventually their rooms might come up in our conversation so just so everybody's listening know that knows we're the characters come to White Plume Mountain to get those three weapons back. Yes. Well, I, just to, to finish the thought there, for, for legacy weapons, the way it worked was they would they would start off as sort of minor magic 
items and then you would have to do certain things to unlock more and more abilities yes so if i were going to introduce these weapons into a campaign and get them to keep them that's probably what i would do i would say well you have to unlock their abilities you have to make the weapons like you you have to for black razor you have to do what he wants every three days and then <laughs> it'll it'll get better and better and then if you don't do that nice he'll things. take away some of nice the powers things. yeah so that's kind of what i would do if i was in that situation um that's how i'd run it but yeah in yeah so going back to rooms there are two specific rooms which are really difficult to try and explain to how to players how they work um geographically without a map if you have a map even then honestly even with the map it took me a while to figure it out even with art and everything i had to like really look at it and uh, and this is where I will say the novelization, um, the, uh, the the Greyhawk Adventures White Plume Mountain book, which actually is a pretty good book. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, comes in real handy because as it is a novel and they go through these rooms, they have to explain it in the novel to someone who has no maps, no reference, nothing. And they do a pretty good job of it. So I kind of just took the extracts from the book and just kind of threw those into some some of the descriptive boxes that I had for those rooms. And it, it, yeah, it really streamlined the process. I didn't really have any questions from the players. It allowed me just to get all the information out in one go without having to worry about, it also makes it sound really well written because <laughs> it's professionally written. <laughs> by, um, but that was something I found really handy. And then I did have printouts from the original first edition because I think the first edition has a better rendition of how the room works. And that, that was really helpful for those because they're really neat rooms and they're very interesting, creative challenges, but trying to get a mental picture of what exactly you're looking at can be really well, difficult. One has to be the inverted pyramid. Yes. Took that was a fair amount of time to figure out. It's basically a yeah. step pyramid turned upside down. I described it as a Lego pyramid reversed. Yeah. And that, exactly. that made it easy for people to understand, but yeah, it is. And every time you step down, there's another encounter on the step down and the step down and the step down. <laughs> In the third edition one, they added uh, tubes that go, they actually made them fully enclosed with glass steel. And then oh, okay. in the corners were tubes that go down through each floor, Oh, okay. which I didn't like. I, I didn't include that part. Um, no, I like it just open. Yeah, I like it open. I think it's a, it's a better challenge. Because you can then, challenge pro you can problem solve around it. Exactly. Know. It gives you more, more options rather than just like making it clear what, what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. The room with the, with the floating river with Sir Bluto probably one of the hardest fights in the dungeon you know what's interesting about it is that they were able to fill this dungeon with all the stuff in the monster manual without having to except for kelpies they had to create those but basically stuff from the monster manual and that fight is amazing to me because it's like a cr9 and eight cr3s in one room and they get a surprise attack on, <laughs> on the players it's like oh now it is an optional room in the stream i it is in the stream. I did not make it optional. I removed a wall or I added a wall to a chamber so they would go okay, through because I, I so wanted them to. There are account. parts of the dungeon that are actually optional. Three, there's three op areas that are optional. What's funny about it is that they are the rooms that in the third edition, at least give you the most information about the weapons before finding the weapons. And it's because they have like humanoids. One of the optional rooms has a has a, a wizard and a fighter. Another optional room has a bunch of knights. Another optional room is just a random room with a puzzle in it that has no other bearing, and you can completely skip if you really want to. 
but yeah, there are some optional rooms. A lot of people, the Serbluto room tend to make that non-optional by adding a wall to the hallway and making it so you have to go through it, which is what I did because I had been, I had foreshadowed the effect that there were these knights that had gone in uh, led by Sir Bluto the Merciless. And, and, uh, and never returned. Yeah, and they hadn't come back. So when they get there and they start being attacked by these knights, they're like, oh, we know who these guys are. Let's kill them. <laughs> Which is basically how it went. They didn't try to talk to them. They were like, no, they attacked us. We're, we're going to kill them all. Uh, the other room I think is really neat and also kind of goes harkens back to the idea of sci-fi is the room with the frictionless uh, yes. solution. In the third edition, they actually changed it by making it almost frictionless they add they add that in there and they also make it so you can destroy it but it self propagates um so they added an actually the third edition did that a lot in the original and in the fifth edition they, there's a lot of things they just say cannot be destroyed or is like impervious to damage and in the third edition they actually give them like hit points and acs and stats and stuff mm -hmm. because the nature of third edition was you could brute force your way through everything if you really wanted to but what they did, the other thing they did in the room in third edition, which I thought was rather devious, is normally you get there, there's two open pits with super tetanus. I recommend looking up what frictionless actually means if you don't understand it, by the way, and when you're going to run it, because it doesn't mean what you think it means. Correct me if I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's like a pit, and when the party jumps the pit, they then land on what's called this frictionless floor. Yep. And their momentum then carries them across a plane and to the into other pit. another pit. Correct. It's like one of these things where it's like you see the trap, you know the pit's there, but you figure you can jump it yep. only to land on the other side and slide down the hallway and into another pit. And the interesting thing about it is because it's frictionless, that actually gives you certain uh, aspects of it that you can work with. So like you can't jump off of a frictionless surface because there's no purchase. So you can't push off a frictionless surface. You, in any you, way. There's yeah, there's no there's no friction, so your feet can't propel yourself. So you, all you do is just fall forward if you try to jump, and other things like that. So it, it it really actually makes you have to like really work your mind. But that's the kind of thing you'd never see that in like a modern adventure because it's so it's so out there. Like it it, it requires it's like well, a, it's like an engineer created it. And and in a modern adventure, you wouldn't want something like that just left to the DM to decide how to judge. Whereas I think in earlier editions, they gave you the gist of it, and then it was up to the DM for how it would be judged in the game. Basically, well, I mean, that's, that's this, this dungeon in a nutshell. Yeah. There's a lot of things like that where it just describes the room. And this one, they do actually give like a suggestion of how they could solve the room. Because I think they did, I think Lawrence Schick did kind of think that it might get difficult for people who weren't familiar with how frictionless substances would work, especially back then when you didn't, you couldn't just Google frictionless surface. It also, <laughs> there's also kind of a nice tip of the hat to sort of old school gamers because old school gamers to, to play on a stereotype, generally speaking, in my opinion, socially challenged, but not intellectually challenged. Mm. So the idea of a frictionless surface, they could get their head around. Oh, yeah, for sure. Again, I'm painting with broad strokes here. Please don't be offended. But I think that's like almost a tip of the hat to the old school gamer, the first edition gamer. Go ahead, Jay. That and I think to a degree, too, in the older games, there was a level of paranoia that existed, right? You would never be in a first edition game, really, when somebody's like, I, like a barbarian's like, I kicked the door in and I burst into the room and, okay, let's roll for initiative. 
in first edition, everybody was like, we listen to the door. We look at the door. Can we see anything around the door? Are there any marks outside the door? Like going through a door or entering a situation quickly was something that didn't normally happen, especially if you've you had already been. There were consequences for, for rash actions, whereas I think now there's still consequences. It, it's an embarrassing part of the story. You maybe take some damage, some spell slots get used up. Older editions, the consequences maybe were a little more severe. You wouldn't, you wouldn't rashly just burst into a room or a situation without 100%, even from the doorway, like sort of surveying it. You might have thrown something in there, right? You might have tied a rope on one character and had them proceed. I mean, there was a lot of things you would do before the whole party would go, this doesn't seem like a serious enough threat. There's obviously, once again, the paranoia, there's obviously something else in here because this doesn't look that dangerous. And there was no, there was no check. If you didn't tell the DM you were looking, I'm looking under, like there's, there's a trap in Tomb of Horrors that I'm thinking of that the bottom of a box has a pin on it. Oh, geez. If you don't tell the DM you look under the box of the pin, you're getting jabbed with the pin. Like I search it. Okay, you as your hand glides under, you're stuck with a pin, and it's poison. Roll a saving throw. You failed. You're dead. And all it would have taken was for you to go. I look under the box. Run my dagger along the bottom of the box. You never in first edition. You never touched anything with your hand. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't a ten foot pole. It was a short sword and a dagger. Right. Like as you, you your weapon simply got shorter as you closed in on the mysterious item. Eh. But I mean, yeah, like the, there was a level of paranoia I find that maybe doesn't exist nowadays because the lethality maybe isn't always there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're but, kind uh, of we're kind of running out of track on time, so can we maybe just talk about? There isn't one big bad evil guy in this dungeon, is there? Uh, not particularly. Uh, I mean, Karaptus is kind of the big bad, but a module as written. You never see him. You never. Yes. Uh, you never deal with him. You never fight him. Does he? Okay. The, the one thing I like about this dungeon is once you find the items, you now have to get out of the dungeon. And there's actually an encounter on the way out. Mm -hmm. Does Karaptus show up for that? He his voice does. Okay. He, he does. He does a big voice thing. Mwahaha. How dare you know? Surrender now and yada yada. The, generic bad villain evil and it's of... no joke encounter like the monsters you fight oh no it's not the, the, the monsters you fight there's a pair of them is there not there is interestingly enough in the original and this is how deadly it is in the first edition version and in the fifth edition it says you know what if the players have actually only just barely made it out maybe skip this encounter <laughs> and consequently it also says then again if they've had an easy time of it Throw two more in. <laughs> Put four in. Yeah. So the encounter is is uh we'll, we'll ruin the surprise. The encounter is Ifridi, is it not? It is. It's it's two of them originally. Uh but yeah, they say you can add four if yeah. you really want to. Here's now two fire gins. Have a nice time. And you've used up everything to get through the dungeon. Yep. And then uh you know, I they just cast a bunch of wall of fires, summon some fire elementals. <laughs> uh they're immune to fire, so what do they care? Yeah. It's it, it's implied through the way it's written that you're kind of supposed to try and escape that fight. It, it's not really intended for you to kill them. I'm I'm sure some parties could, but the way it's worded though, makes me could, think that you, you could don't have, have the magic weapons by then, right? Well, that's the thing, and and that's what's interesting about this dungeon is that there are a lot of 
really deadly encounters. But it if you have even one of those weapons, all the encounters get significantly easier. Yes. So since we're talking about the Efreet, uh, Karaptus, according to Dra- Dragon Magazine, was a pyromancer uh, and actually author of the Pyronomicon. So. <laughs> the <pyranomicon. laughs> that's awesome I so, uh, that. yeah so that's that's where all like the fire and the volcano and all that and the um the one of the afraid actually, actually the two afraid become major players in the sequel so uh which, don't which, they have goofy names too their names nicks nicks and Knox. that's it that's it. and then the other two are like box and cocks <laughs> which which what's really interesting is in the third edition they actually replace it with one of them called Zinzon. Uh, I, I know all this now. This is in my brain. And uh, you only have to fight the one guy. And that is intended for you to actually fight him. That is not intended for you to try and escape. But I don't know. Even with legendary weapons, if I was leaving a dungeon expecting to go like leave forever and I saw two or four of those guys, I'd be like, no, we're, we're getting out of here. We're, we're finding a way to get past these guys. Because your the sheer damage you're going to be taking every round, like you just won't be able to account for it. Oh, it, it's a feet don't fail me now sort of moment for sure, right? Like, hey, if you guys aren't as fast as me, that's your problem at that point in time, right? Yeah, oh. I don't, I don't have to be faster than the monster. I just have to be faster than you. Now there is, as you mentioned, there isn't really like the big bad boss fight. Um, yes. There is a section in the original, and again in the fifth edition, and I guess in the third edition where there's this sort of valve that you see on the side of one of the one of the hallways and if they really explore like and i'm talking like they are thorough in exploring exploring this little area with the valve it says that it leads to the uh to the chamber like to a lower chamber where Caraptus would presumably reside himself and he has some other stuff down there but it doesn't give you anything it basically just tells you to play it by ear as a dm which I find really strange, <laughs> but it's there. But the second edition sequel has an entire floor plan for that area. Oh, really? Explains, explains all of it and how it works and gives it all these really cool vistas, rooms and things you explore. So if uh, in the stream, my players started getting obsessed with that area and I told them off stream, I said, just ignore that. It's We're, I, we're not going to bother with it because it's going to take too much time. Yeah. But... I did have, if they had gone through it, I did have a section prepared from the sequel, basically explaining, yeah, you go down here, you see this and all this is there. And I did have a room ready there to go. Interesting. And you could, if you wanted to have that confrontation with Karapt- with, with Karaptus, because now this is the big spoiler. The Karaptus in White Plume Mountain is not the real Karaptus. It's hinted at in the text of the module that he may not be the real one. He's not. Karaptus is was seeking eternal life, and one of the ways he thought he could try doing that was by crea- imprinting his mind into a spell, into a spell matrix. And uh, he had a bunch of gnome followers. And after the weapons were stolen from White Plume Mountain by adventurers and taken off to go be given to whoever ends up getting those stolen back, they went into his chamber and um, ended up accidentally imprinting his mind onto one of the gnomes, and that is the Karaptus in the module. So, according... so is Karaptus himself a gnome? No, he was a human. Oh, okay. That, that I was hoping he was a gnome because I thought for a madhouse ridiculous romp. Oh, it makes perfect sense for a gnome. But here, but it is. Gnome. It is. Uh, you could argue that the actual White Plume Mountain dungeon was created by the gnome and not the original Karaptus. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. 
um, because the original Coraptus is gone. He is not on this plane of existence anymore. Oh, yeah. uh, and he can't come back because the weapons were stolen. It's this whole thing. <laughs> and the sequel actually needs the Coraptus in the original White Plume Mountain to die in order for it to progress. It, 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 the sequel is 20 years in the future, and um, the, there are now more than one per, uh, care, a person who has developed these imprints. One of them is the Afrit. One of them is another boss from the dungeon that also apparently needs to survive. And the third boss also is supposed to survive, and he's in the sequel. So that... I don't like that when they do that in sequels to modules yeah, where they bring characters yeah. back. Cause I'm like, but what if he dies? What if they kill him? So I, you have to, you may have to find some ways around that. But I, um, I want to talk about one room before we, before we wrap this up. Sure. And, and cause I think it's amazing. And it's the crab room. Yes. That was one of the rooms I was referring to. That's hard to describe. Yeah. A massive crab, but he's basically in an air bubble with boiling by water boiling. on it. So you could cook the crab, but the problem is you're probably going to cook yourself if you cook the crab. <laughs> yes. Um, what's interesting about that room? Well, two things. One, who puts a freaking giant? Like when you look at the other two boss monsters, and you look at the other, it's like it's a giant crab. Uh, it's a giant crab with a uh, magical bracelet. Um, yes. And uh, a lost uh, temple of Tomochan, uh, lost shrine rather of Tomochan, has a sentient slug that you have to fight oh that's true that's fair and there's um they did that a lot in the older ones yeah like the, these... se the sequel has sentient mold really that's one of the things we talked about too is that i think a lot of times in the newer games it falls into the same sort of 12 monster rotation but in yeah. some of the older editions you would they you would dig deeper into that book and you would pull out some really so... fascinating stuff but you would the, expect like maybe maybe a turtle dragon or something. A dragon well, turtle you yeah, you'd expect something like that. Yeah, but, but no, got it's just this a giant crab. Massive crab. The actually the uh, this the spinoff in the Dungeon Magazine for Second Edition, one of the boss monsters is a Dracolisk, which is a dragon plus basilisk. I I read oh, that and cool. I was like, oh my god, that just sounds tough enough. That's incredibly deadly. But no, yeah, so the, the giant crab is in this big bubble surrounded by boiling water. And what's really interesting about that, it's hilarious if you watch the Six Sides thing, they tried to cheese that fight because there's this long hallway that leads out to this big open area and the crab's huge, he's massive, so he can't fit through the hallway. Mm -hmm. So they were just sitting there trying to like pepper him with range attacks. Yes. The crab realizing this was like, it starts looking at the bubble and just raises this a pincer and they're like, Oh no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so then they immediately teleported in front of him, parried it and started getting into combat with him. It's by far the easiest fight, but it is hilarious. It is, it is, it is really great. Uh, they, they accommodate for that. Well, in the, I, in thought, the I thought the crab had a ridiculous armor class. It does. It's just the damage output is not substantial. No, true. And he can't wield the weapon he's guarding which the other two could, and they should. Yeah. You should have them wield those weapons. Why not? It's fun. The The crab actually, what's really funny about it is in the sequel, they talk about Coraptus like if someone's getting imprinted, they would like obsessively draw pictures of giant crabs. <laughs> really? I guess he had a thing for giant crabs. I don't know. Well, um, I just think it's funny because like they set up the giant crab, so a missed missile weapon could technically puncture the dome in, in fact it doesn't specifically say it, it it does take into it does uh it does specifically call out large weapons like with reach and like great swords and pikes yeah um and, it, and i would definitely include missile weapons in that as well but it doesn't tell you how to handle that 
Not even the third edition really does. It's like they want that to burst and the hot water to come in. It's almost like like the whole cooking of the crab in boiling water. It's there. The joke is there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, they even give you a contingency that if you if it does happen, they give you like I think a d6 rounds before it completely collapses, and then they give you a way out. Mm -hmm. Um, That completely saves you like 100% and is well. If you can withstand the heat of the water. It's interesting. Well, not even then. You, you there's a way out of that room if you do if you do the right things. You can get out of that room unscathed when it collapses. There's just one specific thing you have to do, and uh, it, it is it is pretty great. You basically I just hope you're not religious when you when you have to do it. <laughs> is is the main thing, um, and that you happen to be near the chest when the blaze when the thing bursts. That those are the two. Those are the, as long as you can meet those two requirements, you're generally fine. That room is fascinating to me. Because you're like, how would you even build that? Like, even with magic, is it's like it's one of those things where you're just like, well, I think we've run out of racetrack here, so I'm gonna we're gonna wrap by saying thank you very much for coming on again because you you this is not your first time on Old Men Rolling Dice, and we're gonna have you back to run this module, and I'm not sure who the player cast is gonna be, but we're gonna run it and record it, and everyone can see. I'm hoping the crab maybe gets somebody in the game. That's. <laughs> I'm hoping somebody to... gets crabs. Is I, that I what want... you're telling me? Just the big crab. Just the big crab. <laughs> I want the TPK. Devin, take a note. I want the TPK, and I want somebody to die to the crab. <laughs> don't don't listen to him, Devin. He he gets one beer in him, and this is how he starts talking. I haven't had a beer tonight. <laughs> I don't believe you, based on I, your conversation. I, I am entirely sober, I promise you. I promise I've had you. a beer, some liqueur, and two martinis. My God, man. What do you do on a So, Devin, where, I know you're involved in a whole bunch of projects. So, where can people find you? Uh, so, every Sunday, I'm on Six Sides of Gaming. Um, we're going to be starting up Candlekeep. And that's going to be taking up for several months at least, because there's a lot. And they're probably sure. not all going to be one-shots. Um, and then after that, I'm playing in a Shadowrun game which is yep. fan freaking tastic. <laughs> and that is on just so everybody's aware that's twitch.tv yes. slash six sides of gaming. Yes. Six is in the letter, the, the word. Yeah. It's spelled out S I X. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, in the shadow run game, I play a basement dwelling, uh, anime loving dwarf Decker who, uh, is, has no concept of personal space. <laughs> um, and is allergic to cheese. Well, uh, you know, it happens. Uh, it's great. And then on Mondays, I'm on um, Elder Braincast, where I play a bard sailor who uses sea shanties as weapons. And I actually nice. sing sea shanties. Do you actually? Oh. Yeah, I have lists and everything. Don't let Jason hear. He's very critical of people <laughs> singing talents. Uh, very we've had a couple of conversations regarding players who sing. I love when a player sings. Yes. I also appreciate when a player sings well. Fair yeah. enough. Fair. Luckily, sea shanties are designed to not require a lot of vocal oh, talent. Not so. just that. It definitely requires... Yeah, it, I can see where it implies several drinks. And, <laughs> and like you're, you're simply upcasting all of a sudden. <laughs> may or so, may not be a thing, yeah. So Old Men Rolling Dice, <laughs> you can find us on, on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on twitch as well under a different name though we on twitch we are twitch.tv backslash dm underscore jeremy if you have instagram 
please head over to Instagram. We we seem to get into a lot of great discussions with our Instagram friends. Like the give us a follow and check out some of our posts. There's lots of good discussions on there. From, a lot of old school discussions. We post a lot of dice porn, as they call it. We love we love dice. Anyways, we've got lots of great things in store uh, that's upcoming. You can download us if, if, wherever you found us. Hey, congrats. Our home base is Podbean, though, <laughs> if you want our complete uh, library. If you're listening to us, I guess I don't need to tell you where, where, where to find us because you've found us. So our traditional sign-off is goodnight, Dick. And d- lately, Devin, we've been letting our guests uh, say goodnight, Dick. So we're, we're going to turn it over to you. You can be as creative with that as you'd like or as simple as you'd like. Uh, we've just thrown Devin on the spot. He had no idea we were going to do this to him. So, uh, yeah, Devin will sign us off. Good evening, Dick. Good evening, Dick.